what that means. Um, and we've got a threefold vision at our church that the Lord gave us back in the summer, and it's this. Um, at King's Church, we dream of living out our mission in three distinct ways. First, by being a worshiping family that hosts the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we want to be about. That's our first thing is, is this on Sunday morning. We come together, uh, we, we worship, we pray. The Spirit is here. If we don't do this, then we're wasting our time. And we're going to talk more about this part. That's what this series is all about, is hosting the Holy Spirit of God. I'll tell you what the other two are. The second one is this, by being a house of prayer that awakens our generation for kingdom renewal. We're talking a little bit about that just a few minutes ago, about, about God's calling on King's Church in a unique way to be a house of prayer, to discover the power of intercessory prayer and to do it in strategic ways. And we've got some strategic ways that we're going to be doing that in the months to come. Um, thirdly, by being an apostolic mission that sends out people with power for ministry. We want to be a training center where you and I and our kids discover the unique things that God has called us to do and the power to do that. Finding our spiritual gifts, finding the tools that we need, and then being sent out to do that as well. And that includes things like planting churches, sending out missionaries and those kind of things. That's really what we have a heart to do. So back to this first one though, the host of the Holy Spirit of God. Let me give you a quick recap of last week. Last week we were looking in the Old Testament if you're, if you're not very familiar with Old Testament history, you, you might be familiar with something called the tabernacle or the temple. If you go to Jerusalem now, you can still see the remnants of the temple. It's occupied, uh, the, the temple mount is occupied by uh, a Muslim mosque, but there's one portion of the wall still remaining of the ancient temple. That's sacred to the Jews because that was the dwelling place of God for ancient Israel. It was the presence of God and it was symbolically represented they needed something to look to and say, that's where God is. So they approached it with holiness. They approached it with caution. No one could go into the innermost part of the tabernacle because it was so set apart. Um, of course, last week we talked about the failure of the people to honor God's presence. In other words, the, 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 uh, the disregard for the temple. Um, allowing idols to be worshipped, allowing pagan sacrifices to happen. All of those things leads to a destruction of the temple. Israel's enemies come in, and in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes in, sacks the city of Jerusalem, burns the temple to the ground, burn, tears down the city walls, brings the people into exile for 70 years. And the Old Testament ends, well, they... Uh, after 70 years, they come back and they finally rebuild the temple. It's not quite the same. But the Old Testament ends with a promise of a new way of hosting God's presence. The people, by and large, are a little bit disillusioned. We don't know what does it mean to be God's people. We don't know how, to, how, do, we, how do we be set apart. We've got the temple here, but we know that it's easily destroyed. And we know that God brings judgment. And we really can't figure out left from right. So the, the, the prophets then leave the Old Testament with this promise that one day God's going to do things in a new way. His presence is going to come back, but it's going to come back in a fresh new way. So fast forward then from the end of the Old Testament, 400 years. 400 years pass. And God hasn't said a lot. The prophets haven't said a lot. Palestine, the Middle East, is now a largely different place. 
It's now a Roman province. The Romans have arisen to power. They have taken over. They have established their might and their will and their authority. They have built roads through and they have consolidated all of these areas of the ancient world into different Roman provinces. And Palestine is now one of those provinces. Uh, Israel and Jerusalem at the time are largely, are, are fairly cosmopolitan compared to where they were way back when. There's a lot more influence from the Romans and the Greeks and uh, the Egyptians and all of these other things. Um, the temple, by the time of Jesus, 400 years later, the temple is still standing. It's been rebuilt. And Herod comes along and Herod sort of re remodels it as well. But religion, for the, for, for the time of Jesus, even religion is largely fractured. There's a lot of different groups that believe different things, and one group believes this, and one, you know, you've got the Pharisees on the one hand who believe something, and then you've got a, a group called the Sadducees who believe something else, and then you have this, this, this sort of hyperactive group called the Zealots, you know, they just, they want to take up swords and overthrow, uh, overthrow Rome, and then you have this other group, the opposite way, called the Essenes, who feel like, we just got to get away from all you crazy people, we're going to go out of the desert, we're going to live by ourselves until the Messiah comes. So there's all these sort of different, confusing, sort of morass of, 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 of religion, ex religious expressions by the time that Jesus comes along. So into this world steps Jesus. And the gospel writer, specifically Luke, introduce him then as not just another one of Israel's spiritual giants, but Luke says he is the most prophetically significant individual in, Roman, in, in Israel's history. So that's what we're, we're going to be all over. I said this last week. I apologize in advance again. We're all over this book today. We're going to be flying through stuff. I did my best to get it up here. I don't make apologies. It's all right. It's all God's word. It's all good. But Luke makes it clear that when Jesus comes, he's not just another one of these significant figures like Moses or David or some of the judges. Jesus is different. He's going to play a different role in Israel's history. He's going to have so much prophetic significance that it's going to change the dynamic once and for all. And Luke is coming in and he's going to begin to address this. So here's our first point. In Jesus, and, and, and by the way, we're still thinking about this in the shadow of the temple. What, what role does the temple play? So imagine, if you will, just the temple is behind us. Can you imagine that? If the temple were blue <laughs> and about 12 feet tall. And the, in the shadow of the temple, Jesus is born. And Luke writes his gospel very aware of the role of the temple. And you're going to see what I mean by that. First point is this. In Jesus, the temple is both replaced and fulfilled. It's both replaced and fulfilled. So I talk about Luke. There are three major, well, there's more than that, but at least at the top of the list, three characters in Luke's story. Jesus, of course, is the number one character. The number two character is the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you to go through Luke and circle how many times the Holy Spirit shows up. And then the third character is the temple. The temple is all over Luke's gospel. He like goes out of his way to mention things like Peter and John were walking down the street and they saw the temple and they kept on walking. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Why would you mention the temple? It has nothing to do with the story. But Luke wants to be clear that the temple still has significance in light of what Jesus is about to do. It's still a meaningful symbol, and it's essential. This is the point. It's essential that the temple still be 
operational. Listen to that again. I'll tell you why. It's essential for what Jesus is about to do that this still be functioning. It's important that it had been rebuilt. It's important that the sacrificial system had been re-inaugurated. And Luke wants to make it clear that it's, 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 it's not just another symbol. It's important that it, that it still be functioning. Why? Because Jesus has come to replace it and to fulfill its purposes. How is he going to do that? Well, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to cleanse the temple. And we know the story. We're going to read it right here. It's in John. Look at this up here. It says this. Um, 1 John, or John, John 2 verse 12 says this. After this, and there's a story before it, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. First of all, is there anything wrong with this, technically speaking? No. Because they would need cattle and sheep and doves. Those are all things that were required to be sacrificed. And if, if you were a family who were coming from far away for Passover, it was expected of you to offer a sacrifice. But it was not expected that you bring your own animal. Can you imagine taking the two-day journey, bringing a cow behind you the whole time? No, it was, it was unnecessary to do that. What we do is we take money, we go up, and when we're, when we're there, that's where we buy the animal to sacrifice. That's fine. That's what they did. So cattle, sheep, and doves, many others sitting at tables exchanging money. So different currencies are exchanging here and different things happening. So these in one sense, are, these are legitimate services that help people do what God's called them to do. But look what happens. Jesus comes in, says this. So he made a whip out of cords. This is not impulsive. This is not impetuous. He doesn't just grab, you know, grab a whatever and begin beating people with it. He is meticulously kneeling down, picking up these ropes, weaving it together into a long horde. He knows what he's doing. He is controlled. And drove out from the temple courts both sheep and cattle. It means beating the cattle, chasing them out. Scattering the coins of the money changers, knocking stuff over, flipping over tables. To those he saw who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And Jesus just loses his mind. At least that's what they think. He's out of his mind. He's having a moment. goes on to say this, his disciples remembered what is written. Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him. So that's the first, let me, before I go on to that, that's the first thing that Jesus needs to, needs to do is to prophetically, the temple needs to be cleansed. Not that there's something wrong with these. This is a prophetic act. Jesus needs to be clear that something is wrong in this place. You guys have turned it into something that it's not. It is meant to be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of robbers. So prophetically, he's going to come in and by this act, he's saying this place needs to be cleansed. And there's so many deeper sort of levels of what that really means. And he says this, the, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? 
Who, who says you have the right to do it? Jesus, show us a sign. If you really are, you know, have this prophetic authority, give us, show us something. And Jesus says this, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. That's boldness. And he says, tear this temple down. Three days I'm going to raise it back up. And obviously the, 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 the Jews at the time have no idea what he's talking about. The disciples say this, John says this, is after he was raised from the dead, go on one more up, Emma. One more down. Oh, there we go. Um, can, you, can you go up one more to this? They replied. Did I not include it? There we go. Okay. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? Taking him literally. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Don't miss this. The temple that he had spoken of was his body. So Jesus comes in and Jesus says, I'm going to replace this. This needs to be cleansed. This, we need a new temple here. And he says, if you tear down this temple, I'm going to raise it back up in three days. And that's exactly what he would do. Through cleansing and through... So that's the first way that he replaces it through cleansing, but also through sacrifice. So, so Jesus makes this, this, uh, this, this prophetic word that what's going to happen. They don't, they don't get it at the time. The disciples didn't get it at the time either. But he says, if you tear down this temple, I'm going to raise it up in three days. Let's fast forward now to John 11. John 11 says this. So now, this is sort of towards, a little bit closer toward, in, into Jesus' ministry towards the end. He's been doing all kinds of things that are getting him in trouble. The Pharisees hate him. The Sadducees hate him. The religious leaders hate him. They hate him because he has power and authority that they don't have. And the word is getting out about all the incredible things that, that, that's happening that Jesus is doing. So they're collaborating. All these religious leaders are collaborating about what they can do to get rid of Jesus. So they go to this one man named Caiaphas who is the high priest. Pay attention to that. Caiaphas is the high priest of the temple. The high priest of the temple who is responsible for instituting, inaugurating, and overseeing the sacrifice that makes people pleasing to God. The high priest is the one who offers the atonement sacrifice on behalf of the people. Are you hearing this? The high priest is the one who offers the atonement sacrifice. The Passover lamb. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees called a meeting. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. They're frustrated. They're ticked off. goes on to say this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. You know, the enemy feels that way about us in our church, Right? He's angry. He knows if I let them go on, everyone's going to believe in what they're doing. It's awesome. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. That's all they're concerned about. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. Listen to his wisdom. He's smart, doesn't even realize it. Says this, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. In other words, guys, this is a stupid argument. Let's just have him killed. It's better that he die than all of us die. 
And the angels are laughing at this. And they're saying, exactly right, Caiaphas. You had no idea. He did not say this on his own, says John. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. So it's important that the temple still be standing because prophetically, a final sacrifice needed to be made. Once and for all, the Passover lamb that was spotless and blameless needed to die as atonement for the people. And Jesus comes in and Jesus cleanses the temple and He says, I'm going I'm to complete what this temple was for. It's going to be torn down. It's going to be raised up in Himself. So in Jesus, the temple is both replaced and fulfilled. Are you guys with me? I'm going too fast. If I am, throw something at me. Number two, in Jesus, the presence, capital P, shifts from the old temple, this is the old temple, to the new. Okay, first of all, what is the presence? That is the manifest presence of God that we would see in the Old Testament. That was the cloud and the fire. That was the glory that just descended into the tabernacle. That was whatever that intangible holiness was in the ark that called Uzzah to fall over dead. The presence of God in all of its fullness is now shifted away from the tabernacle, away from the temple, from the old into the new. Who is the new? What is the new? It's Jesus. And Luke wants to make it very clear that something is unique about Jesus hosting the presence of God in a way nobody else has, in a way David never did, in a way uh, Elijah never did, in a way Moses never did. How has it shifted? Why, why, why can we say this? First of all, because the Holy Spirit um, is, well, that's not up here yet. The Holy Spirit is uniquely present during birth stories. By the way, uh, we, we might teach on this at Christmas because I love it so much. And I won't, I won't stay long on it, but I, I was, it blew my mind the first time I saw this. Let me go back to it. So you know that the first few chapters of Luke are all about the birth story, the Christmas story. You know, and lo, there were angels in the field, or shepherds in the field watching over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord, that, that story that we've heard a thousand times, right? In one format or the other. But one time I began to be curious about the role of the Holy Spirit in these first three or four chapters. And I began to count and underline. I was blown away. I was like, you got to be kidding me. The Holy Spirit shows up more in the first few chapters of Luke than He does in almost the entire Old Testament. Eleven times the Holy Spirit is referenced just in the birth stories. And by the way, Luke begins his book in the temple and he ends it in the temple. They're like bookends. They come together. And in the middle is this whole incredible story about how Jesus is the new temple. So, in Jesus, the presence shifts how? Number one, He was baptized in and full of the Holy Spirit. Luke, Luke 3.21 says this, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as He was praying, look at what happens when He's praying. I never noticed that. I never thought about that. 
Heaven was opened. Look at that. Look at just, we could build our theology almost on this one thing right here. Like this could be our mission statement right here. Y'all with me on this? As he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him. Could stop right there and that could like define our church dream and our church vision. Holy Spirit descended on him and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But John, John's gospel says this. John's gospel says that that the Spirit, the Bible says the Spirit rested on him and remained. And no one up until this point in the story has ever had the Holy Spirit remain on them yet. A lot of times the Spirit rested. The Spirit rested on, on, on guys like Gideon, on guys like Samson. The Holy Spirit would come upon them in a moment and they would have this incredible power to do what God's called them to do. The Spirit would move upon you know, individuals for a short season and for a short purpose, but no one has ever had the Spirit stay until now. Jesus is different. He's baptized in and He's full of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says this, um, Later on, a different one, he talks about how right after he's baptized, he is sent out into the desert. But it describes it this way. It says, Jesus, comma, full of the Holy Spirit, comma, went into the desert. So we're meant to see, man, there's something unique about this guy. This guy now has what the temple has had. Now it's on him. Second thing is that Jesus is very aware of his anointing. Not only is he full of it, he's aware that he's walking in this fullness. He's walking in this anointing. Look at what it says in Luke 4.18. Mentally, he's aware of it. Luke 4.18 says this. He gets up. He's at synagogue one morning. He gets up. He's handed a scroll that was already chosen. He didn't pick this one out randomly. It was already supposed to have been read that day. He's opened it up to Isaiah. And he begins to read this thing out loud. He's fulfilling prophecy. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So he to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And he says, the Spirit of God is on me. He's aware of this. He's aware mentally. He's also aware physically. Look what happens here in, um, in Luke 6.19. It says this. He's out doing ministry. He says, um, all, the people tr- all the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. It's like this passive voice, you know? Like, it didn't say that Jesus healed them all. It just says that power was coming from him as if he didn't know what was happening. In fact, there's another story that it doesn't, he doesn't know what's happening. In Luke 8, go to this one here. Later on, this woman comes up to him. She's, she's insecure. She's shy. She is uh, considered unclean. She's had this disease for, for 12 years. And Jesus is being pressed in by all these people clamoring for his attention, clamoring for healing. This woman sneaks up and touches him. Reaches up, grabs him by the cloak. The Bible says she came up immediately and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. That's pretty, that's, that's, that's incredible. Who touched me, Jesus asked. <laughs> Peter said, Master, Jesus, everybody in the world is touching you. Are you kidding me? You've got like 500 hands on you right now. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Who in the world knows that? 
Who in the world is so in tune with the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that when there is a shift, when there's an exchange or a transaction in the spiritual realm, they feel it? Jesus does. He knows it. He's that aware of His anointing. Third thing is, He operates in power and authority. He walks in this. He operates in this. Luke 4 says this. Luke 4 talks about how the people are amazed at His power and authority. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words are these with authority and power? And He gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. Luke 5, 17 says that the power of the Lord was present. One day Jesus was teaching. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. He's had it with him. Just walks with, just walks with power, walks with authority. Be healed, be healed, be healed. Be cast out, get out, get out and leave. Everywhere he goes, he just has unlimited power, unlimited authority. And here, here's, here's an important point that I don't think I, I pay enough attention to. Finally, all of this, this presence being upon Him, Him hosting the presence, where does that come from? It doesn't come because He just was this miraculous sort of divine God who was born on the earth, which He was a miraculous divine God who was born on the earth. But the Bible says He laid that aside. He walked in this because it was, it was nurtured through fellowship with the Father. He was full of the Holy Spirit in a unique way. He did host the presence of God in a way like we've never known before. But all of that was nurtured through fellowship with the Father. Look at Luke 5.16. says this. You can't see the gray. I'll read it to you though. It says, the news about Him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear Him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Power, ministry, power evangelism. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So I want to read these references to you. They're not on the screen. Listen to all of these. Luke 5.16, just read it. Luke 3.21, Luke 4.42, Luke 6.12, Luke 9.18, Luke 9.28, Luke 11.1, Luke 21.37, Luke 22.39-45. Every single one of those references this exact same thing. Jesus gets away all the time. Jesus ignores needs to go be with the Father. Again and again and again because that is the source of His power. Intimacy with the Father. Relationship with the Father. In the quiet place. In the hidden place. Jesus does it. So, in Jesus, the presence shifts from the old temple to the new. Baptized, in full of the Holy Spirit. Aware of His anointing. Operates in power and authority. Nurtured through fellowship with the Father. Here's the third and final point. In Jesus, the presence then is released into the world. So I want you to see these shifts. It was in the tabernacle. Then it was in the temple. Fast forward several, several millennia. All of a sudden now, the temple is destroyed. Now it's in Jesus. 
the full measure of God's presence is in Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is now about to transfer that away. So if Jesus begins His ministry by receiving the presence, which He does at baptism, He ends His ministry by releasing the presence. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Jesus is a conduit. His role here was not just to die on the cross for you to be forgiven of your sins. That's inadequate. That's, by itself, that is not the full measure of the Gospel. Jesus didn't just come to purify the temple. What did He come to do? To fill the temple. didn't just come to purify my heart of sin. If this is the temple, He didn't come just to clean it out. That wasn't enough. What did He come to do? Why clean it out? So it can be a, 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 a place of habitation for God Himself in my heart. That's it. We can't have the cross without Pentecost. They're meant to go together. Jesus alone is not enough. He says that. Got me in trouble sometimes when you stand up and say, Jesus isn't enough. Even Jesus knew He wasn't enough. Even Jesus said, it's good that I go because if I don't go, He can't come. Who is the He that He's talking about? Holy Spirit can't come unless Jesus is gone. Jesus comes to cleanse the temple so that the Holy Spirit can invade the temple of the human heart. Alright, I just gave away the rest of the series. We're going to be done. That was it. So Jesus begins His ministry by receiving the presence and He ends it by releasing the presence unto His disciples. Look at what it says here in John, John 20, 19. says this. He says, On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. So the doors are locked, right? There's no way in. They didn't forget to lock the doors. Jesus just materializes through the walls and flips them out. He says, peace be with you. Which is another way of saying, guys, 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 calm down. It's okay. Really, it's me. After He said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Take a look. Look, guys. Wounds. Fresh wounds. Check this out, guys. Right here. You remember up on the cross? They stuck me up there. Yeah, this is it right here. It's me. It's me. It really is me. He says this. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I bet they were. goes on to say, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. They're still flipping out. They're still losing their minds. Jesus is still saying to, telling, telling them, calm down. Calm down, guys. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And there's a transfer. And He said, with that, He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Begins His ministry with the Spirit coming down. Rest on Him fully all the time without measure. Enabling Him to do powerful things. Enabling Him to, to walk in intimacy with the Father. He ends His ministry by releasing that then onto these men. And in Acts 1, Jesus is about to go. He's about to disappear up. And He tells them. They've, they've, he's, sort of, he's, he's sort of passed this on to them in one sense, this is more like a personal sort of you know, receiving of the Spirit, but something more powerful needs to happen collectively for them. And Jesus knows that. 
His breathing on them, I think that inaugurated the coming of the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't the full measure because the full measure comes in Acts, and we're looking at it next week. Acts 1, Jesus goes to them and he says this, on occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. which you heard me speak about. But John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus operating in a prophetic gifting right now. He knows what's going to happen. The Father has revealed to Him what's going to happen. And He says, guys, this is not enough. The full, the real, you know, at our house, my mom and dad are here. And, and a tradition we had at Christmas, we always get to open a Christmas Eve gift, right? One gift on Christmas Eve. And we still do that at our house. It's always pajamas for our kids. They know it now. It's not really a surprise, but it's fun nonetheless. So they get to open this one gift, but they know that the real stuff is the next day. That's Christmas. That's like the whole enchilada right there. And Jesus is saying, guys, you've gotten a little bit of a taste of this, but there's something incredible coming just a few days. Wait, wait, wait. Don't leave. Don't run away. Stay. Because the gift that my Father promised you for the last centuries is coming. You're about to inherit what was prophesied to Moses way back in the book of Exodus. You're about to experience what was prophesied to the prophets hundreds of years ago. You, disciples, are about to receive something you've never known before. The constant, abiding, full, limitless measure of God's presence. Wait for that. Wait for that. What a promise. Baptized in the Holy Spirit. That would have blown the minds of David. It would have blown his mind. It would have blown the mind of Elijah, Elisha, Abraham. They couldn't fathom that. They couldn't fathom what it's like for the holy place and the ark to be opened up and that holy presence to come in and move here and to stay here. but it's because of the cross that that now can happen. The cross cleansed the temple of the human heart. For those who receive it by faith, for those who appropriate it and say, God, holy God, Jesus, Your death should have been my death. But I receive what You've done. And now it prepares the heart for an invasion of the Holy Spirit which is going to come at Pentecost. Everything that he has, they're about to receive. <sighs> All right, I can take a breath. <laughs> All right, Brian, where are you, brother? Come on up, man. Let's, let's, let's just kind of move into this prayer and ministry mindset um, a couple things right away that I sense God is saying God is saying don't neglect the, the simple invitation to receive Jesus as Savior as Lord so if you've never done that this is your day come on this is your morning come on it's as easy as saying, Lord, I, I receive it. You're the new temple. 
You are the perfect lamb who was sacrificed for my sin. I receive that today. It's as simple as that. Pray it. Pray it where you are. Come and pray with me or Brian or somebody else. Any of, any of us here. The Lord is saying, don't neglect the simple thing. I cannot move in where there has been uh, resistance. I cannot invade your heart if there has not been forgiveness of sins. I cannot dwell where there is not a, a, a welcome environment. So I'm not, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Next week, we're going to look more about what it means for the, the Holy Spirit, for the presence to, to rest on the church and to rest on the, the body of Christ and what that means. I'm just beginning to scratch the surface in my own life of how do we walk the way that Jesus walked? I mean what I said about intimacy with the Father. That was, that was it for Jesus. He knew it. He knew it was His source. He knew He had to get away. This week, maybe you need to get away. Maybe you need to go to a lonely place. And those of you with kids are thinking, are you out of your mind? When in the world do I ever get away? I know it. I hear you. My heart hurts for you. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to make a way for that to happen be in his presence y'all let's stand up we're going to worship here and sing I just want to pray I want to pray this over you here and again like, like any time in our church if there's ever needs of healing or encouragement if you want to receive just more of the Lord there's always an opportunity to do that. We don't have altars here. We don't. Find somebody that you know that walks with the Lord and talk to them. Find one of us that you know walks with the Lord and we'll pray with you. Let's just go to the Lord though. Let's worship. Let's ask God. Let His temple, let the temple of His, of, of his body be full in greater measures, greater measures of His Holy Spirit. So Father, we just honor you. We honor you, Jesus. What the price you paid. Thank you for the price you paid. Thank you for giving your life so that we could live. Thank you for coming in, Lord, and purifying my heart. I didn't do it. I can't purify my own heart. Are you kidding me? I can't will myself to do one good thing apart from your grace. Yet alone rid every corner, Lord, of, of vile sin that was there. But you can and you did. You can wash it out. So we yield to that, Lord. We yield to your cleansing. We yield to your purifying work. say, come, Holy Spirit, come.